Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Happy Lord's Day. It is good to see everyone. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use a pew Bible. It should be in front of you. And you will find our reading this morning on page 903 of the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home and read it. I've instructed the welcome team not to tackle anyone with a Bible in their hand. So you're safe to take one with you. As a church, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we've made it all the way to chapter 17. We're going to pick up reading in verse 6. I'm going to read down to verse 19. Uh, This is part two of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus is praying for His disciples. And uh, I'll read the passage, and then I'll pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then um, we'll work through this passage together. should be 45 minutes or so. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. I have manifested your name to the, pe- to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Will you pray with me? Father, as Emma always prays, thank You for Jesus. Thank You that You have given us access into the prayer of Jesus. Thank You, Father, for all of the ways in which You have made sure that us, Your people, 
can read your very words. And so we ask you now by the power of your Spirit that you would come. That as we have read your word, that we would understand it. That we would hear it. That it would take root in us. That it would bear fruit through us. Lord, we ask that by your grace that you would remove from us all the distractions that would keep your word from bearing fruit in our life. From the cares of this world, from the deceitfulness of riches, from the desires for other things. Lord, let us hear your word. And will your joy be fulfilled in us so that we would glorify the Son of God as the people of God for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. What you have just read is a tiny slice of a conversation that has been going on for ages without number. Before there was anything, there was God. God is the one being without beginning, who has existed forever as three distinct persons, as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. Before there were stars in the sky, before there were fish in the sea, before there were atoms or molecules or quarks, There was God. God existed in perfect, unbridled, happy communion within Himself. The infinitely happy God existed in perfect joy, completely pleased with His own glories and excellencies and beauties. God has never been dissatisfied with anything in Himself at any time. He thinks and feels and yearns and is Himself the perfect fulfillment of those thoughts and feelings and yearnings. He has never lacked anything at any time, but is Himself the gratification of all His own delights. And so whatever God does, He doesn't do out of any sense of need but out of abundance, out of profusion. God has not revealed much about Himself from eternity past, but He has revealed some. The Bible teaches that before God created the heavens and the earth, before before He had created time as we know it, God had entered into an unbreakable covenant with Himself. God the Father gave His people, whom He had not yet created, to God the Son. And this was according to nothing they had done. It wasn't even according to anything He foresaw that they would do. It was only for His own purposes and according to the pleasure of His own will. And God the Son agreed to receive God's people knowing that to do so meant that He would have to suffer His Father's wrath for His people's sin. He would pay the ultimate price, but He would do so according to His Father's will and for joy. This is how the Apostle Paul explained it to a young pastor named Timothy when he wrote, 
God saved us, that's God's people, God saved His people and called us to a holy calling. Not because of any, any one of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace. Before there was a need for grace. All of this shows God's glorious grace towards undeserving sinners. Many of them are here today. God the Father gave His people to His Son to have and to hold forever. Well, all of this may sound a bit odd to you. When we talk of eternity and God's timeless fellowship within Himself, we are on the edge of that which is nearly incomprehensible. These are the sorts of things that we find in John chapter 17 in the Lord's Prayer. And I told you last week this is holy ground. We are witnesses to a conversation that has been going on before time began. And so whatever else we do in this chapter, we mortals must tread lightly. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from John chapter 17. There's much to learn, and I trust that God will use what we do learn from this passage to increase us in our worship and amazement of our infinite God. In the section before us today, the Lord Jesus prays for His disciples. He's hours away from the agony of the cross to suffer like no one has ever suffered before or since. And this is what is on His mind, His disciples. And He prays five things for them. He prays that they would be protected, they would be united, they would be delighted, they would be sanctified, and they would be sent. Five things. We'll work through all five consecutively. You're welcome to take notes if you like, although the the sermon is being recorded and you're welcome to listen to it later on if that works better for you. The first point, uh, before we get to Jesus' points of His prayer, I want to unpack sort of the introduction to prayer. And so we see this in verse 6 through 10 where we read the Lord praying this way. I have manifested your name to your people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. For me, the most shocking thing about the Lord's prayer is the subject matter. The disciples, as I mentioned, Jesus is literally hours away from the cross. The disciples are mentioned in His prayer directly 33 times in 17 verses. 33 times. What is occupying the Lord's mind in the last hours of His life? What concerns our Lord? Well, so far in the Lord's Prayer, we've learned two things. The Lord's glory and the Lord's people. I wonder if someone were to transcript my prayers, as John has done for Jesus, and I wonder if a similar weight on these matters would be found in my prayers. If I am forced to do something difficult or painful in obedience to God, am I thinking mostly about God's glory and God's people? 
or am I thinking mostly about myself? As I've meditated on this passage this week, to my shame, I found little resemblance in my own prayers to the Lord's. And I pray that this passage, as we've worked through it last week, this week, and Lord willing, next week, uh, the Holy Spirit will bring correction to us all and teach us how to pray like our Lord prayed. In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. In verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And here's the basis of Jesus' concern, that God's people belong to God. They're His people. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus' concerned to honor His Father, how He treats His people, how He handles God's people is based on the fact that they are God's people. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I wonder if we don't think something similar when we interact with others. Are we quick to dismiss someone on the way that they dress or the way that they act or the church that they attend or the church that they don't attend? Is it easy for us to speak about someone behind their back or to shed them in an unfavorable light? I just wonder how often we share the Lord's concern. These are God's people. These are people whom He loved enough to spill the very blood of His own Son to purchase them. And the fact that we are dismissive of image bearers of God says much more about them, about us, than it does them. More about our sin, really, than theirs. We must never forget this fact, that those who are in Christ belong to Him. They are part of the agreement that God the Father made with God the Son. The agreed agreed upon price of their freedom was Christ's own blood. That very person who seems so irritating to you at a get-together may be the one that God has chosen to send Jesus to hang on the cross to redeem. That's how precious that person is to Him. And so let's make sure that our evaluation of another image bearer of God is in step with God's own evaluation of them. Well, not only does this verse and passage apply to how we view one another, but it also applies to the way in which we view our own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 tells us we, are, we don't belong to ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We were bought with a price. Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. We are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We don't call the shots on our life. We're not determining our own destiny. We're not determining what obedience looks like in our life. God makes that decision. God decides where we go. God decides what He's going to spend our life doing because we belong to Him. And God determines what will bring Him most glory out of your life. You bear your own cross. And I think you probably know this, but God doesn't seem to be democratic in issuing crosses. 
There are many times when you look across the, the church, even this little church here, and it seems inequitable who gets what cross. God has blessed some of us with seemingly heavier crosses to carry. And so for those of us who are blessed with a heavier cross, instead of looking at those who have apparently lighter crosses, carry your own cross, which God has given to you to his own glory and for his own sake. This is one of the ways that you, are know, you know that you are his, that you're carrying his cross. Listen to how Jesus describes his own disciples in verse 6. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them. They've come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus' own description of a disciple is this, one who has received the word, one who has believed the word, and one who keeps the word. How do you know that you're a Christian? Are you keeping God's word? Are you actively now every day seeking with God's help to live for Him, whatever that looks like? Whatever cross you must bear, whichever cross He has willed for you to bear, willingly bear it for the joy set before you. Is there evidence in your day-to-day life that you are surrendered to His purposes on the earth? Do you have living and active faith today? That's how you know. To receive God's Word is not enough. Information must, information means nothing until it becomes transformation. Believing in Jesus is more than agreeing with theological propositions. Even the devil is capable of that. Believing in Jesus is delighting in God through Christ, being transformed into His image, acknowledging your sin and turning from your sin with all of your heart to worship the Lord, denying yourself, and living for Christ. That's what it means to keep God's Word. Jesus prays for His disciple, and He prays for them five things. They were delighted, or protected, united, delighted, sanctified, and sent. So we'll start with protected. This we see in verse 10 and 12 and 14. Verse 11, 12 and 14. Jesus is leaving them, verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So the nature of Jesus' relationship with the disciples is about to change profoundly. No longer will He be physically present with them. He's returning to the Father. So He asks, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in Your name. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Of course, He's referring to Judas. But now I am coming to You. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but here's what he does ask, that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying his disciples would be protected. Well, I hope you see that Jesus is not asking to keep them from physical harm. If that were the case, then Jesus' prayer has failed. If you remember from a few weeks ago when Michael shared with us 
But most of the disciples, they died a very violent death. So he's not asking that God would keep them from danger in the physical sense. Jesus is praying for protection from the real danger to his disciples. The spiritual danger. The danger that he calls the world and the evil one. He's praying, keep them in your name, which probably means keep them, Father, according to your revealed character. Your revealed character as God the provider, God the protector, God the preserver, God the one who is faithful to his covenant. The God who is described at the call to worship this morning from Deuteronomy 7, 9, the one faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for his people. God keeps preserving, protecting His people for His namesake. This is why in Proverbs 18.10, the writer can say, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So Jesus is leaving the world, and He knows the real danger for His disciples is a spiritual danger. And so he prays, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. If you know the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, you'll remember that Jesus instructs us in teaching how to pray, to pray that God would keep us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Christian, I I wonder, do you regularly ask the Lord to keep you from evil? Do you regularly pray to God that He would deliver you from the evil one? I think this should be part of our daily prayer. Keep me in your name. Guard me from temptation. Keep me from dishonoring the name of Christ. There's a real danger to the church is not the loss of Christian freedom. It's the loss of Christian holiness. We are called to live in the world as different from the world. Different in the way that we love. Different in the way that we treat the stranger. Different in the way that we treat widows, aging parents, orphans, immigrants, displaced peoples. The real danger to the church is that while we are in the world, we'll become like the world. And God, for His namesake, must keep us from that danger. So this is how Jesus prays. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Well, I don't want to skip the obvious thing, but what a profound reality it is that Jesus prays for us. Did you know that? Did you know that at this very moment, your Savior is at the right hand of God interceding for your soul? J.C. Ryle, the old bishop, said it well when he said, God's people will never perish Because Jesus never ceases to pray for them, and His prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them.
Friends, I think that when we get to heaven, we'll see that it wasn't because we stayed faithful to God, but it was that God kept us faithful to God through the prayers and intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Number two. In verse 11, we see that Jesus prays for his disciples that they would be united. So one, protected, two, united. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Lord willing, we'll take a look at this a little bit more next week. But I want to point out that alongside the danger of compromising in the world, Jesus discerns another danger to his disciples in his absence. And that danger is disunity. The danger of disunity. And so he prays that his disciples will be one, even as he and his father are one. In high school, I was a band nerd. I mean, well, I mean, let's be fair, I play percussion, so in the scale of nerd, I was like on the top, the least nerdy of the band nerds. But one of the things uh, in band that you would do before every class is the whole band would tune to the same note. There would be a tuning instrument, the band director, she would tune everyone to the same note. Everyone would play that same note. And I was always amazed at my director's ability to pick out that one or two instrument in the whole assembly of instruments that was out of tune. So she would pick that person out, and she would, it was usually a clarinet, because clarinets, she would point out a clarinet, and she would say, you're out of tune, and then she would use her little tuning instrument, and they would tune their instrument, and then we would all play the same, we, of course, as a percussion, play nothing, but we would play the same, same note, and she would know we're in tune. Well, it's a little bit like that with Christian unity. We have to make sure that everyone is playing the same note. Everyone's in tune with Christ. Those who are sharp among us must come down in pitch. And those of us who are flat in in our walk with Christ need to come up in pitch. And just like my director had this little tuner, we have God's Word to make sure that we're in tune with Christ. The reason Jesus connects the disciples' unity to His unity with the Father is that we don't unify ourselves to one another. We unify ourselves to Christ. If I am out of tune and you're tuning yourself to me, that just means that you're out of tune too. If I am imbalanced in my perspective on what is true, you're going to be imbalanced too if you're tuning yourself to me. This is one of the reasons why I think in God's profound wisdom, He gave a plurality of pastors to His church. Because I I want you to understand... You would, do, you would not do well to become like me. I'm not trying to create Jamie likeness. Lord knows we don't need Brent likeness. We need Christ likeness. And so we need to be tuned like Christ. He's our tuning fork. He's the A440. He's the, he's the what is true and right. And everyone tunes to him. And as much as we are in tune with Christ, we are in tune with one another. And we can avoid the sin of disunity, and all of the mess that comes along with that. So Lord willing, we'll talk more about unity next week. Suffice it to say, disunity is a danger to the mission of God's church, and we must strive with God's help to be tuned to Christ, to be one together. Number three, verse 15, or verse 13, sorry. Jesus prays his disciples would be delighted. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
my joy fulfilled. Well, he said something similar back in chapter 15, if you remember. He said this, these words I have spoken to you, speaking to the disciples, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What I have spoken to you, my word may be in you so that my joy would be in you and my joy would be full in you. It would be fulfilled in you. Among one of the most life-changing realities of the Christian life is the fact that Christian joy is not an accessory to the Christian experience. It is foundational to the Christian experience. The fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian are not the decisions they make. It's the delights of their heart. The fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not decisions. It's delights. What delights them? So it is a mischaracterization and a misunderstanding of Christian holiness that it is a sort of grit your teeth, grin and bear it, obedience to God's commandments. It is not cold compliance out of duty. I'm sure you understand that a man who romances his lover out of duty is not in love with her. A husband who is tender to his wife because he has to be is not in love with her. Christians have long known that submission to God's will, to His commandments, even though difficult, cross-bearing, self-denying commandments, comes from warm delight, deep love, deep joy. This is why Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Joy is foundational to the Christian life. Did you know the Bible commands joy? Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, because you didn't get the first time, rejoice. One writer put it like this, to be joyless as a Christian is to dishonor God. It is practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, Our God reigns. Amen and amen to that. To be joyless as a Christian is to dishonor God. It's practical atheism. So joy is not an accessory. Joy is foundational. This is why Jesus prays for joy in His disciples. I speak this to the world, in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's because Jesus' own obedience to His Father was tethered to joy. Do you remember Hebrews 12, 2? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus tethered joy to obedience. When God called on His own Son to do the unthinkable thing and lay down His life at pain and agony to Himself, He did it. Why? For joy. For joy. This is what makes Christian joy distinct. Our joy is in our God. Our joy is is in our God, which means if God is our source of joy and God is our joy in Himself, that means our joy cannot be lost. 
It cannot be stolen. It can never fade. It is never in need of repair. It is not susceptible to economic fluctuations. It never needs Botox. It never is dependent on our feelings or our health or anything circumstantial at all. Joy is in the Lord. So for the disciples to endure life in this fallen world and to walk in obedience to God's word, they're going to need the joy of the Lord. Isn't that what Nehemiah said? The joy of the Lord would be your strength. Number four, Jesus prays for his disciples to be sanctified. Let's read 14 down to 17. I've given them your word, and your, the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctified means set apart. It means different but it's just not set apart for no reason to be set apart. It means set apart different for a special reason, for a special purpose. The disciple of Christ is different from the world because the disciple of Christ has a special purpose in the world. They serve the Lord's mission, ministering the gospel wherever He sends them because they have a special purpose. And because of that special purpose, that special missional purpose, They must be sanctified. They must be different. They must be set apart. God's people are reserved for God's holy purposes. Only so far as they act in accordance with the truth of God's word. Sanctify them by their truth. Your word is truth. So what is going to sanctify us? God's word of truth. Isn't that what David prayed? Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think that's what the Apostle Paul also meant in 2 Timothy 3, in this most famous passage about the Bible. But I wonder if we read the next verse. So you guys are all familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. But in verse 17, it says, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yes, it's true that Scripture is God's Word, but it is God's Word that sanctifies us, that sets us apart for His holy purposes. Christian who is fruitful in the work of God is a Christian who is fruitful in the Word of God. Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Again, Jesus is our example. If you look down at verse 19, He says this um, somewhat enigmatic statement. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Well, of course, Jesus is sanctified not in the same way we are sanctified, meaning sanctified from sin. Jesus had no sin. He didn't need to be set apart for sin in that same way. He was set apart. He was sanctified for God's redemptive purposes. He was set apart for God's special purposes to go to the cross to effect the work of redemption to provide the very means through which God's people would be sanctified. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Jesus prays His disciples would be sanctified. And number five, 
they would be sent. Jesus prays his disciples would be sent. This is verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We've already learned that God's people, you, me, the disciples, all the Christians from all of time, are in the world, but they are not of the world. However, they are being sent into the world. These three things are careful to keep them together. You're not of the world, even though you're in the world, you're being sent to the world. This is what makes sanctification so important. You're being sent. Which means you could say, sanctification is for mission. Sanctification is for mission. I agree with David Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. So important is it for us to see our personal holiness is for God's glory and God's global mission. Being different from the world for the sake of being different is a waste. All that does is lead to finger-pointing and smug arrogance, the kind of self-congratulation that characterized the wicked Pharisees who wouldn't even lift a finger to help anyone else. You see, sanctification for the sake of sanctification means nothing. It must lead us to mission. Now, I, I think if I'm honest, as your pastor, this is one of the things that we struggle with most as a church. Some of us are okay believing in Jesus, receiving His Word, we're also okay with not doing anything with it. But you understand that God's Word is never meant to just come to you. It's meant to come to you, to transform you, to work through you to others. And we've been led to believe that as long as we're not engaged in some kind of overt sin, we're doing well. We feel good different from the world. We look at the world and we say, that's how they live their life, but I'm different Christian man that I am. Well, we've neglected to see that what we don't do is also disobedience, as overt as any other sin. As if we're not actively engaged in helping someone else follow Jesus. Beloved, we are walking in disobedience. If you can't think of the last time that you shared the gospel with an unbeliever or commended the gospel to a Christian brother and sister, let's call it what it is. That's a sin. Do you know what happens when we just come to church, receive God's word, and then do nothing with it? Can you see how that turns God's holy church into a self-help seminar? If we, all we do is receive God's Word for our own good, for our own sake, and do nothing with it, then we just turn this Bible into a self-help book so that we can have better relationships, so that we can have a better life, so that we can go on being undisturbed about the sin that 
we hold so closely. If this Christian life is all about us and our growth and our success and our flourishing, the betterment of our life as we like it, then we aren't that different from the world, are we? Well, I pray that God would unsettle us deeply in all of the ways that we have turned His gospel into a product to consume rather than a message to convey. If we're not helping someone repent of their sin and be encouraged in faithfulness, become more like Christ, we're not gospel-centered. We're self-centered. And so I've asked the Lord to bring us to repentance and spare us of His judgment. I do thank the Lord for those of us here who are going into the world. I praise the Lord for the brother who started a Bible study with a neighbor who recently got out of the hospital. I thank God for the sister who regularly shares the gospel with her patients in therapy. I'm encouraged by the sister and my Living Stones group who's begun leading a children's Bible study with their kids. When I hear of those uh, among us who are reaching out to each other over the phone, encouraging one another, praying with one another. The reality is, friends, if you are in Christ, verse 18 says, you're being sent. Your life is not your own. You don't get a choice in the matter. You are a missionary in that sense. You don't get that occupation to choose. Just as God sent Jesus, He sent you. The only question is, will you go? Will you go to an unbelieving world? Because you're the only one who carries the message of eternal life. They're not going to hear the message of eternal life by watching television in the evenings. They're not going to hear the message of eternal life by going to the movies on the weekends. Unless God sends His people to the graduation parties this afternoon, they're not going to hear the gospel there. So as Jesus sent, as Jesus came, sent by the Father, you go, sent by Jesus, into the world. I pray that you will. Please stand for the prayer of confession. As we're getting ready to pray together, I do want to say one thing just very quickly, that if you are here, and much of what I said this morning is absolute gibberish to you, uh, I want you to know that I'm very glad about that. I'm very glad about the fact that um, when you read the Lord's Prayer in John 17, it doesn't make any sense at all to you. Uh, I've asked the Lord to help you to see that if you're not a believer, that you would recognize it. It's very easy to be deceived, and I pray that you would see that you're not a Christian and that you acknowledge that and you would turn from your sin and that you would trust in Christ and that you'd be saved. If you're not sure how to do that, then I just encourage you to reach out to someone after the service today and ask them to introduce you to the Lord. I know many of the people here, my family, my church family, and I know that they would be happy, delighted 
to tell you all about the Lord and His grace. Would you pray with me the prayer of confession? Father God and Lord of heaven and earth, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Would you hear our prayer today? Lord, we confess to you that what we read Jesus praying for is often not what we pray for. We see what are His priorities, and they betray our sinful attachments to this world. Would you forgive us, your people? For how often we think too much of our own safety and our own comfort for the expense of your gospel's mission. And we ask the Lord you would show us mercy when we seek to live for ourselves. Lord, send your spirit to convict us in those moments when we're living for ourselves. We seek to make church a means to get a blessing instead of deepen our obedience. Lord, we've neglected to spend ourselves on on your purposes. As we look at our weekly calendars, we see little resemblance with your son's priorities. Lord, would you forgive us of that? And forgive us when we have taken the holiness that you have worked in us and turned it into a license to gloat and to look down on others, other image bearers. Forgive us for speaking about your sons and daughters behind their backs. Forgive us for pointing fingers in accusation instead of lifting them in encouragement. Lord, we repent for not going. We've received the blessing of forgiveness, and I think if we're honest, we've done little with it. We repent for thinking sanctification was just for our good. And we repent for all of the ways in which we have neglected to encourage Christian faithfulness in others. And all the ways we've neglected to share the good news with the lost. And all the ways that we've not made it a priority to help others follow Christ. And so we ask what Jesus asked. Lord, keep us. Lord, keep us from the evil one. Keep us in your word. Guard us from evil. Enable us to spend ourselves for your sake and for your gospel. Would you you embolden us, your people, this weekend to overcome the fear of discipling, to stop looking at ourselves, but to look to the joy that Jesus looked to. Move on us, Lord, by your Spirit to share your truth with any who will listen. For your glory, for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's advance, and for the health of this church, we pray.